Welcome to Exit Point, a podcast about the advancement of base jumping and the exploration of its culture. I'm Matt Blank, producer and co-host. If you'd like to support this independent production, visit our Buy Me a Coffee link in the description and leave us a review wherever you listen to podcasts. In this episode, we interview Dan Darby, who's been skydiving and base jumping for over 15 years. He's a competitive wingsuit skydiver and base jumper and a member of the U.S. parachute team for wingsuit performance flying. He's also a co-founder of Arcus Flight Wingsuit School in D-Land, Florida, and a multidisciplinary skydiving and wind tunnel instructor. In this episode, we talk to Dan about wingsuit progression and survival tactics, training techniques for performance flying, and the new wingsuit base competition he created in Sassperdoi, Italy. We're excited to hear what he has to say, so without further ado, let's get Dan on the track. Man, it feels good talking to you guys. I've been a super chaotic day at work, and... Uh... One super interesting thing, though, I had this conversation with um, a woman who's a leader in media literacy, and she has this organization called Lie Detectors, and it's all about educating children about being media literate, you know, like thinking critically about the news that they're exposed to, uh, rather than just arbitrarily picking sides or seeing it for face value. And uh, yeah, one of her metrics for success was you know, when, or one of the questions that I asked her was like, when do you see this, you know, work taking fruit or bearing fruit? And she said, probably when the kids I'm teaching now are parents and their kids are in the classroom. So we need like something like one generation to make a culture shift. I thought it was, thought it was pretty interesting. It was like, we're really in it for the long haul. Then I was like, well, there's some correlations there to base because we have big sections of time where there's like this culture around our sport and feel like it's evolving a little bit. Matt, you're a little bit more involved with this as, you know, doing first jump courses and, you know, just seeing more beginners at exit points, et cetera. Like, do you feel like there's a shift that's happening here? A shift in what regard? I'm not quite sure. Well, like the approach, right? Like what my example was like, like people are thinking critically, like, do you see the sort of student that comes to base as being a little bit different these days? Oh man. Actually, I see uh, it being polarized more. I see people uh, thinking way more critically than they have. And I've, I've seen people who absolutely don't care at all. Um, So I just think that it's, it's being, it's, it's more extreme these days. Some people are getting into it, wanting to read every piece of information possible, talk to anyone that, that has valuable information, uh, do it in a way that is sustainable. And, uh, there are also people that like, you know, buy a rig off of eBay and want to go figure it out on their own. And that was like one of the more recent incidents that I I was, uh, you know, apprised of, uh, on the birds page is somebody that just like grabbed a rig and went and hucked this like uh, antenna out in Hawaii, not even knowing how high it was just because they wanted to be a base jumper. (laughs) Wow. Dad, you're in the skydiving space and you, well, you're in the base space as well, but most of your education revolves around base or skydiving, right? Um, would you do you feel like this is something that's happening in skydiving too? I mean, is the culture shifting a little bit? So I, I kind of side with Matt here, where like there 
are two very big camps and both camps are growing, but the divide is getting stronger for sure. There's the people who show up who really want to learn and to progress in in like a some sort of logical way that makes sense to them or somebody that is teaching them. And then there's the I just want to go like get rowdy with my friends crowd. And I like that the the people who approach it with some sort of thought tend to stay in it a little bit longer. I have felt that the uh, the crowd that shows up just to get rowdy, they really like the initial adrenaline that they see in skydiving. They think that it's super exciting and like all of their non-skydiving friends really like give them accolades for doing this kind of thing. Um, but after a while, that starts to wear off. And if they haven't seen any sort of real progress or progression or thought that goes into it, the, the rewards that they've sought uh, kind of diminish a little bit. And so they have like a three to four year shelf life versus the like seven to 15 year shelf life that we see out of people who want to like do something specific and put real work into it. Hmm. That's interesting. What do you think, Matt? Do you think that that applies for base jumpers as well? Yeah, though I think the shelf life is uh, a little shorter on both ends. Yeah. Like it's tough to survive that long, um, uh, even three to four years. Uh, so I think a lot of the, the folks that get into it uh, that are the rowdy crowd uh, either get seriously injured or seriously shaken. And um, I think it's uh, rare for them to even last three or four years. And when you say survive, you don't mean survive, live or die. It means like uh, just as far as like well, that too, but like um, the what they're exposed to, the injuries, the um, and everything else that comes with base. Exactly. I will say having not been an instructor for 20 years, I can't say that this shift isn't like growing more popularity in the thoughtful crowd like maybe in years past there was a lot more rowdiness and now we're starting to see an increase in people who want to put real thought and research and like developmental planning into this um but in the 10 years that i've been working in the sport uh yeah this is just kind of what i've seen Mm. i mean i think we can be prepared do due diligence and get like to get rowdy too though right where's where's the space uh, fit in for for getting rowdy in air quotes responsibly <laughs> well uh if you're asking me then i think that the more you know the more rowdy you can get you know if uh you've like measured and quantified the margins for air then you know it's uh easier for you to like hook that triple gainer off of that cliff versus the person that literally doesn't know whether that's possible or not, um, they're not going to be able to put down their their full capacity in any of the environments that you would want to. Like, I mean, even wingsuit base, you know, you can get closer to a cliff edge, you can get closer to the ground, you can fly through more trees if you've calculated all these things and you know what you're capable of, versus the person that's like doing it just, you know, based on feel isn't going to be able to push as hard. And so if you really want to get rowdy, I think uh, even the more sustainable, uh, logical approach is the better way to go. There's a saying that kind of goes hand in hand with that, that I really like. And it's um, learn the rules like a lawyer so you can break them like an artist. (laughs) I like that. And I really agree with Matt that like the more information you have, the more prepared you are to 
do the things that you have really wanted to. Yeah, that, I like that. The The more prepared you are, the more you can do what you want. I mean, I don't know. I can just speak from personal experience that I know that like, um, I know like, for example, like opening a couple of spicy exit points, like um, I really like going, measuring, and then um, walking down thinking about it. Like there's been three of those where it's like I measured it, took some pictures, didn't even bring my rig and then walked down and just sort of chewed on the idea and just let that simmer a little bit. And uh, that's not necessarily like real training, but it it helped me to prepare like my visual site map of what that was going to look like so that when I went and opened it, it was like, yeah, I was, I mean, it felt super rowdy, but I had, you know, I'd done the calculations. I had studied the maps. I had, I waited until I was like, felt 100% about it. And uh, yeah, I guess that sort of fits into this conversation, right? About like executing that rowdiness in um, with timing. Yeah. And coming at things with like statistical, like knowledge and information, like you lasered it, you took pictures, you went home and you studied the maps. Like that's not I don't know, I would even consider that being rowdy, even if the exit itself was spicy. I think that that was pretty calculated on your part, and I admire that. That's why I've been doing this for so long as well as you have. Yeah, well, maybe there's an element of luck there, especially in the early years, too. <laughs> that's funny, too, because <laughs> I sold a, a little bit of gear to somebody that's just started wingsuit base jumping, and uh, they, you know, they don't know who I am or you know, not that I'm anybody, but like, they don't know my history in the sport. And he asked me how long I've been base jumping. And I was like, ah, you know, like, it's going to be a little over 14 years now. And it's like, oh, whoa, I hope to survive that long. <laughs> and I was like, man, what a bleak perspective on the sport. And um, anyway, maybe I'm getting a little bit into the weeds with this whole topic. But um one of the reasons we wanted to chat with you and have you sit down is because of um, like the training and the the base jumping that you've been doing lately. Um, you know, like we're looking behind you there and I, I don't know, maybe I, I can't even see how many wingsuits you have there. Um, you have a wingsuit training program. Uh, tell us a little bit about your business and, and what it is you're doing. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, my wife and I run a company called Arcus Flight out of Skydive to Land. Uh, we've got 62 rental suits and 12 wingsuit-specific mains, so that uh, just because you have a velocity doesn't mean we can't stuff a Episcene Pro 130 in there and actually set you up for some good chances of success. Uh, but we've got the the Sprint, Swift, ATC, Free, Cold lineup in all the different sizes so that somebody can show up and, like, I want to get decent at this, and then we can take them through the whole process. And... Uh, we ship suits across the U.S. with the parachutes. Uh, we want this to be pretty accessible. We want to see the sport grow. We want to see people do this uh, sustainably, you know? So we don't want to see people going straight from the sprint to the freak. Uh, we would like to see some stops along the way. And if we can help make that happen for people, then I think that's a, a positive thing. Yeah, that's a really cool service. I mean, when I started wingsuit skydiving, um, you know, I was limited to what was available on the drop zone at Lodi, you know, so I, thankfully it was a pretty wingsuit friendly spot, but like, as far as like sizing goes or, or, or even like having the right parachute, I mean, I can't even, I can't even remember how many people thought it would be a good idea to try wingsuiting with 
you know, their elliptical canopy and had a chop and then got too scared and decided that that is just not for me. Yeah. So that's kind of one of the big things that we try to get people away from. Like, uh, I have people show up for first flight courses and they're just like really strongly, like, I really want to do this with my saber two one Oh seven. And I'm like, you really don't want to do that. Like we can just take so much mental load off of you by like the parachutes included in the rental price, the parachute, the everything's included in what we do. Uh, so it's not costing any extra except for the five minutes to swap out your like canopy. They're on risers and deployment bags with pilot shoots. So it's not like a rigging hassle. It's a pretty easy thing that we can do. And, uh, you'd be shocked at how many people are just pretty adamantly against it. That's, um, are, are there some other like common pitfalls that you have or see in students that come to you as far as like getting off the right progression path? We try to keep a pretty good handle on like the, the why we recommend doing these things. Like it, it doesn't sound like the most fun thing to be in a small suit for longer, but like we really like we have shown people that if you do just 30 or 40 extra jumps in a small suit before you step up to something bigger, it's going to make the, the transition into something like an ATC or freak so much smoother. You'll be able to fly with your friends safer, better, faster, closer, uh, all the things that you really want to be doing versus if you just tick the very bare minimums, then like I think that the, the thing goes pretty well together. I think that the suit lineup that we have is pretty intuitive and it flows together nicely. Um, the issue is when people uh, get access to bigger suits and they don't want to work with us anymore, uh, then we, we're we not going to tell you that you can't, but uh, it does make your lives and our lives more difficult. Right. You can't not, you can do it, just not with us anymore. I mean, I'm, I'll definitely fly with people, but like, if you don't want my advice, please don't make me t- give up my time giving it to you. Like that seems <laughs> rude. Yeah. You know, that, that kind of goes with base too, as wingsuit base too. And the hard question that uh, we talk about is, do you use the suit that you're comfortable with or do you use a suit that's right for that object? Right. I mean, ideally you're comfortable with the suit that's right for that object, but this is a real question that people ask themselves. And I think it's worth discussing is like, if you've done, let's say 250 jumps in a freak and you have a crispy new, um, Alpine or aura or whatever, and you're going to go send it. Are you going to take the freak because you're comfortable with it? Or are you going to take that big suit because it starts faster? So somebody a long time ago asked me about like the sustainability and the dangers of base and specifically wingsuit base. And the thing that I was able to boil it down to is that the most dangerous part of base and wingsuit base is the human element, right? And so I think that one of the biggest skills that anybody can bring to the table in the base environment is the ability to tell yourself not yet or no, uh, either way, Um, because that exit is always going to be there, right? There's no reason that you have to do that jump that requires you to take a risky gear selection right now, right? That can wait for you to go home, do more skydives, come back next year, 
and that's way safer. And I totally think that the like the best long-term base jumpers are the ones with the self-discipline to say, I don't have that just yet. What do you think, Matt? We've talked about this a little bit, but I'd love to hear you chime in on this. Whether it's better to be on a comfortable suit or a suit that's appropriate for the, or more, uh, has more margin for the exit. Yeah. Or even if the question is asked incorrectly, just this topic in general. I mean, I don't see why it's a, a question of one or the other there. You know, I tend to think that you should stick to exits that are appropriate for the suit that you are comfortable in. And, you know, if the exit becomes inappropriate for that suit, then become comfortable in the next suit. Simple as that. I agree. What do you, what do you, how do you train people to be comfortable or more comfortable in new suits, Dan? Like, let's say somebody has, uh, you know, a, a big handful of jumps and they're freak and they want to go base jumping in Europe next year. And, uh, they're like, you know, how do I get more comfortable in this, um, bigger suit? So if we have a whole year to prepare then, and they're absolutely like die hard. I have to jump my bigger suit. Then we've got some work to do, right? Uh, we're going to put a fly side on you. We're going to do a whole bunch of casual jumps in your bigger suit. And then we're going to start tuning up the performance using the numbers and the GPS data that we can get out of your fly site. Uh, maybe that means like unstable exits. Maybe that means instability maneuvers in free fall. Uh, most of the time, that's going to mean maximum performance in either speed or glide. Um, but it's really just learning to push the suit through all the different angles, all the different pitch attitudes, so that when you do find yourself like jumping off of a mountain and you need to recover that uh, exit and start flying away, you have been through the whole process of like learning how to drive your toes towards the ground and push the suit to go away from the rock. Yeah, I like that. That's usually what I'm doing with new suits. When I go skydive a new suit, put it through all the angles. Uh, and uh, what was the term that you used? Unstable uh, flight pattern something? Sorry, what was it that you said? Uh, instability recovery. Instability recovery, yeah. So sometimes that's just do a barrel roll that you're not actually like trying to do a barrel roll, right? Sometimes that's like, flare really high and do some sort of front flip just so that you get off axis and things get a little bit squirrely. And it doesn't have to be like you're going for acrobatic maneuvers. It's just find a way for the airflow not to be perfect from your shoulders to your toes anymore. Tell me a little bit about China. You're, I mean, you just came back from China, um, second race of the season. You've been to China before, right? Yeah, so this is my uh, second World Wingsuit League. I went in 2019, and then we've had the four years off for the COVID shutdowns, and then this was their first year back. Uh, everybody agreed that this was one of the best that we've, they've ever seen. Um, the crowds were there. They were out in force. Uh, the skill level was very, very high, and there was no interpersonal issues with the jumpers here. Uh, everybody got along really well. I thought that this year's event was awesome. I really hope I get an invite to go back next year. Yeah, I mean, from the sidelines, it looked like it was a total all-star crowd for sure. Like, um, so much talent. And uh, it just made me happy to see, like, you know, an, a shining example of how wingsuit base jumping is progressing 
in its professionalism and its competitive nature and um and then also just putting on a really good show i mean it was beautiful you guys were blessed with some amazing weather and uh, you know i tuned into some of the lives to to check it out and uh it's super exciting it was uh you know it was like uh it was a really exciting event to watch you know that it, it needs a little bit of organization on the media side for sure and you know the the chinese uh broadcast um left some for desire that's for sure but um um yeah it's exciting it's exciting to see that yeah and it's always fun going to a race course like that where it's um steep in the beginning but overall kind of short and so some of the things that we learn doing the longer races like at Perdoi don't necessarily apply one-to-one and uh it is always a really fun puzzle to try and figure out like how to maximize your scores It's, it's a good time did you feel like it was a fair race? Like it was a legitimate competition? So we understand that this is a competitive demo, right? Like there's a bunch of people there and there's no big prize money like in years gone by. But uh, I do feel like all of the athletes there gave it their best shot. And I don't, I didn't see anybody like egregiously breaking rules to com- to gain any sort of competitive advantage. Um, I thought that it was very, very fair. Um, yeah, I thought it was a, a good race but we understand that it's also a show and so having like the the countdown and the media there and it takes a bit takes you out of your head a little bit and it's a a really fun exercise in like narrowing your focus to the things that are important for what you're doing one of the questions that i had too um in from previous events and then particularly in this one is um you know it's not all the the fastest line isn't always the straightest line and, and another instance that or factor that plays into this is weather. And I noticed that like the first, was it the first turn or the second turn? You have to come around. It was like a turn out to the right and then back towards the landing area. And I was noticing that there was some pilots that were getting some instability there, like hitting some turbulence. And of course, turbulence kills speed. So I was was just like, hmm, I'm wondering like if, you know that there's like a you know a, a thermal developing there or you're in a lap cycle where you're going to be in a, you know introduced to some turbulence around the turn if you would plan it by going a little bit wider i mean i might be adding a little bit more complexity but for sure there were people getting experiencing turbulence coming around that turn and then there was others that either were cutting through it nicely or it wasn't there at all is that how did you feel turbulence wise? How did the air feel when you were there? So we were actually like very fortunate with the weather. The for most of the jumping days, right? Of course, there's always going to be some instability in the air as the sun starts to rise and things start to come up out of the mountain. Uh, it's not hugely helpful that there's a giant hole in the mountain, so you get some of the stuff on the backside coming through as well, which does pour out into that first turn marker. Uh, the I would say that the most unstable conditions that we saw were during some of the uh, the target punching uh, and less during the race. I thought that during the race, the air was actually quite smooth. Um, but even then, I thought that the way that it was set up was quite fair. And there's always going to be some sort of like wind affecting how you're flying or how fast you're going. Um, but I think that it really did come down to piloting here. It was, uh, 
it was quite fair. Uh, that's good to hear. I did like your comment about the uh, the straightest line is not always the shortest line. Uh, they do have a rule where you have to be like seven meters away from any uh, terrain. So like not getting super close to trees or anything like that. And that adds a really fun challenge because sometimes you could, in theory, go a little bit faster or cut off a little bit of distance. But to be within the rules, you don't get to be exactly where you want to be. Uh, but it was it's really fun to try and maximize your your performance there. It's a good time. Yeah, I bet. How was um how was the travel getting there and back? It's rough, <laughs> huh? Uh it was it was a lot for sure. Um coming from Florida, I flew from here to Atlanta to South Korea and then to Beijing. Uh the Atlanta to South Korea was like 16 hours and it was like a 40 hour on the way there. Uh, all, every bit of 45 hours on the way coming home. Uh, but I would absolutely do it again. Totally worth it. That place is incredible. What about uh, the inter-China flight, like the domestic flight within China? What a culture sh- shift that is, huh? Or not shift, what uh, a yeah, cultural a, experience that is, I should say. It's just different for people who aren't used to that, you know? Um, the way that the Chinese airlines operate might not be what you would expect when you're within the EU or in the US. And that's just part of being there. Uh, James said that this was the first year ever that the outbound domestic flight within China left on time. Uh, like there was zero delay. We actually like left pretty much on time. Uh, he was very impressed and surprised by that because he was warning us pretty much all day. We're going to be in the airport till two in the morning. It's going to suck. And that's just how it's going to be. Uh, and then we left right on time. So we were lucky all around. <laughs> the food can be a bit of a cultural challenge as well. Huh? <laughs> I ate a lot of fried eggs. Yeah. <laughs> Try to keep it safe. You know, uh, last time I was there, I did get a little bit sick towards the end uh, and I didn't want that to happen again this time. And so I did my best, kept foods simple. I hear that some competitors uh, like to um, adjust their wing loading at the restaurant before competition. <laughs> uh, I don't know so much that it's just at the restaurant or for competition as much as it is a lifestyle, you know? <laughs> <laughs> All right. Gotcha. Yeah. Fast people like to eat is what I hear. <laughs> um, Does that actually give a competitive advantage or are you more uh, competitive if you're, you know, a shape like you, Dan, where you've got like a lot of weight in the like chest and shoulders? So I like to believe that I am built for speed. Uh, but I think that, uh, a little bit more weight is always going to be help is always going to be helpful as long as you're not adding extra drag. Uh, and I do think that we will see interesting changes coming to the top competitor next year. Um, I, in like suit selection and design, I don't know if, um, the added drag outweighs the added mass or if it's actually a worthwhile trade-off, but I look forward to learning more in the future. Or I guess uh, more specifically, like where that weight is distributed, because I, I know like back in the day, like people were like weighting their leading edge in order to get themselves a uh, performance advantage. And it would seem that like somebody that had, you know, big chest and shoulders would have an advantage over somebody that's got like a beer gut, even if the beer gut person is like 20 pounds heavier. Sure. Um, what years were those people weighting the leading edge? I think that was like 2000, like. 
16, 17, something like that. Okay. And were those were like modern-ish suits? Like sea races were out at that point, yeah? Or were uh, they mostly the, those, those were out of the Scorpions prior. and the Jedis? Yeah. Uh, I think, because I, I think that was I like did... Aura days. Okay. So I did hear from a couple people who had flown some of the the back in the day older Tony suit products where it was difficult to get them to dive. And so maybe you could convince me that because of where the center of center of pressure, center of lift was in that suit, it would be easier to dive if we added weight towards the front. Uh, but I wasn't there, so I, I can't really say for sure. You felt like it was overall a really good learning experience. I know that each time I've competed, um, which isn't a lot, was a huge learning experience. Yeah. So what I, uh, my biggest takeaway from this year, like in terms of my own performance, because I spent a lot of time training and preparing specifically for the speed event. And then to not even qualify to race in the speed event was a bit of a blow to me. Um, but what I took away from this was that, uh, early acceleration is far more important than absolute maximum top speed. Uh, because the course is so short and the margins are so, so narrow, it's way better to get moving faster earlier on than getting to an absolute ridiculous speed later on in the course. Uh, and I think that that's a pretty big takeaway for how I'm going to approach if I get to go back next time. Do you think that that early acceleration um, is suit related or is a configuration line decision or line choice or both? Or all three? Uh, I'm actually going to say all four because an additional thing that we have to contend with is like jumping exactly on that beep when they give you the countdown. And so there's definitely some athleticism and timing required to exiting as early as you can. I do think that there's real competitive advantage to training that specifically with the audio file and just like repeatedly learning how far you can roll over before you push off so that your feet are losing contact just as the beep begins. That's probably the easiest way to shave like significant time. Um, But I do think that one suit selection matters a lot. If you look at the uh, surface area and like distribution of where the surface area was on some of the like the winning suits, uh, it looks very different to some of the other suits that were involved. Wait, that's um, and that's I, an interesting point on the beep. I, I kind of want to dive into that for a second. So you guys okay. are saying that you're using the same timing every single time somebody leaves, which allows a competitor to uh, anticipate the the beep. Yeah. So they give you like a it's a ten second count, like a ten second warning, and then there's five beeps, and then a, a beep that you can go on, and you have to be in contact with the exit ramp until the go beep begins sounding. Uh, and so they're shooting your feet at, with a high frame rate camera so that if there's any question, they can pull it up and you can like review it. Um, but yeah, there's definitely like some element of pushing there, like when you can lean forward and be like primed and ready to push or even pushing before the beep has happened, as long as your feet remain in contact with the exit ramp until it begins. Is there a reason why you do it consistently like that and and not move to a more uh, track and field like start where you get the ready and set and then the go is random so that people can't jump the gun? I'd never consider that. Um, I think going back to the origins of the event where they wanted this to feel a little bit like Formula One, where the original goal was to have multiple events all around the world. 
um, I think that that had something to do with it, where like uh, you can see the red, yellow, green go in Formula One and most racing sports. Uh, I think that they wanted to keep it something like that. Also making it a little bit more spectator and broadcast friendly makes, I think, more sense to do it this way. But I understand your point that it would be more uh, athletic and competitive to have it a little bit randomized. I can't think of another sport out there where you have an individual event and then the start is randomized. Right? Because in a track and field event or swimming, you have your lanes and you're all competing against each other and you're all taking off at that same randomized time. So I'm not sure if that adds or or takes away from the competition because then that really comes down to how often or how much have you trained this World Wingsuit League specific starting tone, right? Because mm-hmm. then, then I'm assuming there's going to be other races, or right? there's your race that we'll talk about in a little bit. Uh, did you decide to use the same tone that they're using? So the 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 tones that they use at the World Wingsuit League uh, are provided by people who judge like Olympic skiing. They're really really high level, uh, accurate to like thousandths of a second uh and so the prodoy base race doesn't have the same budget so we use the fly site one which is as it's a similar concept different application um but i do really like the 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 stable countdown and the exit beep with the uh, ability to review if you're leaving on time or early because i think that that does make it at least fair for everybody can we, um, Matt, did you have any more questions about that, um, the, about the starting tone? Nope. Is, um, I will, I will add that, um, when you get, well, at least when we got invited to the World Wingsuit League, James did provide the, the starting tones to all of the competitors. So you did have months to train with that if you decided to. That's nice. Um, so we talked a little bit about, uh, so you can gain some time by training for the tone, leaving r- right at the opportune moment. Um, and then the suit choice, um, did you feel like you walked away from that event, um, with a better understanding of like what a suit designed to accelerate early is like? I wish I had more experience designing and building air toys, but I don't, I have theories and, uh, they're not really fully formed. So I'm uncomfortable, like voicing them to the public but i i do think that like the the absolute top speed is easier achieved with a different size shape design than the suits that are going to get moving right away um and for most of my flying i love the super high speed suits right like the the sea base the sea race love those they're super fast really fun to fly it gives you access to so so many different places and lines and they're great like tools to use um but i i do think that like the the early acceleration on a course that's as short as this one uh requires its own level of thought fair enough i'm wondering like how long does the course need to be until that starts changing huh yeah it's like it's not super obvious is it i haven't found a clear answer for that yet um like if you look at the uh, Kings and Queens challenge that most people are doing from Perdoy, uh, that seems to be like the 
if you can get up into the upper 250s, like the 256s, the 258s, the 260, if you're really, really fast, tends to give you some sort of advantage, uh, even if you're not getting to those speeds right away. And so I, th I think that it's right, right around the 30 second mark is where like being able to hit those absolute peak speeds really starts to matter. And I would love to see a race somewhere uh, that's like 45 seconds long. Can you explain a little bit about what the King's and Queen's Challenge is? Sorry about that. Uh, King's and Queen's Challenge is an open 30-second race that you can do from any exit point in the world. You exit uh, and you get 30 seconds to fly as far as you can. Uh, so it's a, it's a speed race that's measured in distance. And you upload your track to Sky Derby and it'll spit out a number. Um, this is how many meters away from the cliff you flew in 30 seconds. It's one of my favorite things to do all summer. I'll spend weeks just playing this game, trying to figure out the best lines, the, the best dive angles, the best like times to arrest my dive and really try to like crack the code of how to go a little bit farther. Um, it's super nerdy and a lot of fun. Um, just sitting there looking at your graphs and like going back and trying to remember what you felt while you're flying, when you started to push your toes down, when you started to like, pull up a little bit uh yeah and then it's just minimizing drag going as fast as you can it's really fun and i think that it provides a lot of very useful tools for the real world base environment where like you know how to access these speeds and you know how much um available lift these speeds are going to give you and i think that, that can actually provide real safety margins when you're not doing these races but when you have a found a fundamental understanding of how to access them let me know if you're not comfortable sharing this, but are from like a lateral perspective, what does your line look like in one of those Kings and Queens challenges? Uh, so I've made some adjustments over the years. Um, I used to approach it kind of like a, like a swooper where I would just dive for a long time and then use that built up kinetic energy to flatten out and get really high like top speeds. Um, and I was consistently scoring what I was happy with in the earlier days. Well, my earlier days were like the, the high 1400s. Right. Um, and I was pretty, pretty happy with that. Um, but then one time I was just like, let's just see what happens if I'm not quite so ridiculously steep for quite so long. Uh, and so I moved my aiming point out a little bit and I saw a marginal, but not dramatic improvement. And so it's taken some time and this is going to be different for everybody's body type, shape uh, and suit size select, like all everything matters when you're playing with like these small margins. But I do think that uh, steeper is good, but there's definitely a point where you're too steep for too long and uh, that's not going to be a benefit. I think you gave us a lot of description, but you didn't actually tell us what your line looks like. <laughs> Uh, it's all publicly available on the Sky Derby website. Uh, go check out the tracks. Uh, I'm not even in first place. I'm, I think I'm in fourth for this year now. Uh, that I had my personal best this year was 15.32, uh, which I was pretty stoked on. And then a couple of people will come in and just like blew me out of the water. And I'm really like excited to go back and look at their lines and figure out how they did it. Uh, but for me, it's at least at Perdoy. I'm diving just outside of where the the little shelf is. And then right around when I'm level with that, I'm going to start picking it up a little bit 
and start aiming towards like the middle of the forest and holding that for another five to seven seconds and then getting pretty flat towards the end. And that has seemed to yield decent results for me. You know, as you were talking, I could see your sort of your eyes fixing on something in the horizon and you had this very focused look to yourself uh, for do you have like visual points that then you like fix your gaze on and they and do those move along the way? I know that like for me, when I want to reach a, you know, a visual checkpoint, I'll have these spots that I'm looking down the mountain to sort of keep me on heading. Um, and, uh, what is your, what is your approach to it like that? So, yeah, I do have a couple like specific aiming points and they'll change from season to season as like trees fall down and rocks move and stuff like that. Um, but I, I just, have a few different points that I select as a, like I'll do a couple days warming up, just getting back into it. And then I'll start diving and picking up points along the wall behind me so that I'm not like air breaking the whole time, driving my chin way, way up uh, because drag is still super important. Right. And so I'm trying to keep my chin down and looking almost behind me for the first little bit, knowing that as I start to get through my start arc, my suit's going to pick up and I'm going to fly out towards the forest a little bit, but you don't want to, overdo it because then you're going to spill a bunch of that potential speed and so you want to keep it diving for at least a little while maybe not as steep as you possibly can but with uh at least a a healthy angled attack are you one of those guys that orders his suits tight <laughs> um pretty I, I might be getting shorter because pretty much every year i ask squirrel to take two extra centimeters out of all of my suits so <laughs> Uh, I really like it. I barely want to have to think about pulling my shoulders up to get a drum tightness from the top to the bottom. Uh, arms, like the, the circumference of my arms, I care very little about because most of the time I'm just going to be driving them into the leading edge like as hard as I can. Um, and in the legs, I like it fairly snug, but I still have to wear like pants and sometimes like big shoes or whatever. So I like a little bit of room in there. But the the overall suit height measurement has become one of my most mission critical ones for sure. Interesting. Is there any other measurements that that are important to you? Like um, you said that you like the legs to be tight. Does that mean that there's no extra space like around your calves? And uh, I mean, I think suits in general have gotten better over the years. But, you know, like, um, you know, we were talking about 2016 back in this conversation. And, you know, you remember that you could see in the leg space was always loose and it flapped around a lot. Do you think having a tight space where your calves are living uh, is important to have less drag? I mean, less drag is always pretty important. Um, the One of the tertiary benefits of having monochamber suits is that a lot of your leg space is kind of hidden behind that now, where like the backside of the suit kind of envelops your leg. So the actual like body chamber for your legs, I think matters a little bit less. Um, the back of the calf is still exposed a little bit and there's just not a whole lot that we can do about that just yet. Um, but I do think that the tighter that stuff is, the, the less drag, the less flapping, the better you're going to do. How much real world perf performance benefit are you going to see out of that? I would not even be comfortable hazarding a guess at that, but I think that a little bit of extra training would be way better than like being too critical about that because there's definitely a part of it that is like usability 
you don't want to feel like trapped and stuck in your suit, not be able to get your zippers open and all that. So I do think that like snug is really, really good, right? I want tight shoulders to toes and then snug everywhere else. Uh, the one thing I will like that I think is pretty important is the shoulder to shoulder measurement, because if it's too short and you can't fully extend your arms, then you fly, end up flying these weird crumpled up configurations and it'll lead to some uh, deformities in your elbows and your torso trying to like hold on to the grippers or fill out the suit. Maybe we can um, move on from the nerdy stuff like you were talking about because um, you uh, had quite a season, um, some very impressive lines and, you know, you're not just a wingsuit racer, but, uh, you know, you do quite a bit of terrain flying as well. I wonder if we could start off um, talking about this portion by letting us know if you had experienced any fear this summer. I mean, I, I definitely carry a very healthy respect for what we're doing into my flying. And I don't typically like to get close to things unless I'm really feeling pretty confident about where I am, where we're going, um, and the conditions as well. Uh, Honestly, some of my scariest experiences were on approach, and uh, I am very much a Floridian, so you put me on a rock and a rope, and I am shaking, so <laughs> I was definitely scared this season, but not so much in free fall. Uh, I, I try not to push it too, too hard, and I, uh, yeah, I want to be doing this for a long time. That's uh, something that I think gets thrown around uh, pretty loosely. And um, I think you're someone who uh, spends a lot of time thinking about what you're doing. Um, when you say you take margin, how, how do you create margin? What does that actually mean for you? It's a hard question, right? I mean... Yeah, there, there's a lot, like there's a few different parts of that, right? So there's like the the very physical thing of I'm flying wingsuit, right? I don't want to be sick, tired, like depleted from a long hike, anything like that. Uh, and then there's the the physics of it, like I'm flying wingsuit, right? Uh, and so um, I did a jump, uh, well, years ago, I had hiked most of the way up one of the milk stool jumps and was just like, not okay you know i was right below the chain section where like you're mostly through the elevation gain you've got maybe like 40 45 minutes left to go um but i was like my vision was blurry i was fuzzy like kind of stumbling not feeling it the fastest way down definitely would have been to ascend jump and just fly down like stay high and away but i absolutely just couldn't do that i didn't feel like that would be within my personal like safety margins right and so i would much rather like Okay, well, I know I crossed the river so I can get some water. I still have a couple of like bars and like snacks. So uh, what should have been like a maybe four hour approach turned into like a an eight and a half hour ordeal where I had to like do the whole thing in reverse, walking back down. Um, but I think like I mentioned earlier, the like ability to tell yourself no or not yet. Um, that's a really good way to build a margin. Um, I've had some conversations with people about like, why I chose the Aura 5 over the Corvid and Corvid 2. Um, and like, I totally agree that I think that if you're really on it, the Corvid 2 is probably the shortest starting suit that exists right now. Um, but if there's a jump that I personally need the Corvid 2 over the Aura 5 to be jumping, 
I shouldn't be on it. So it's one of those things, just keeping yourself honest. And then we go into the actual flying where if you're trying to build in margins, like we want to be flying as efficiently as we can at glide ratios and uh, pitch angles that are sustainable and give you plenty of available lift where you can like separate from terrain. And I don't really like flying close to things that require sustained high glides. And so typically the things that I am comfortable flying close to uh, are while diving pretty hard, uh, mostly because all that I have to do is relax a little bit and I will be rebounded away from the terrain pretty aggressively. Yeah, that's pretty fair. I, I think that's a, a lot of my margin lies there. Matt, just to rope you into this conversation a little bit more, what aspect of wingsuit base jumping do you see as the most dangerous? The most dangerous? <sighs> yeah, that's okay. Uh... I'll, I'll just throw it out because when I, when I think about wingsuit base and um, where the majority of the accidents have, have been, I would think it's right behind impact shortly after exit is some sort of effort to glide over a feature or around a feature or to reach something. Yeah. I, I couldn't, I, I, I'm struggling to, to find an answer for what the most dangerous aspect is. You know, I, I was uh, still thinking about all the, the margin uh, question that you guys were on and, um, you know, you're basically asking like, where are the narrowest margins here? You know, uh, right. which, uh, you know, my follow-up to Dan was, would be, you know, how do you quantify some of these margins? Because I think in quantifying them, you, we'd maybe find out what the most dangerous aspect is. I think a lot of times people talk about margin in a very binary way, like something has margin or it doesn't have margin. Versus like somebody saying like, this has 10% margin for error. This has 50% margin for error. Um, you know, also I've been out of the wingsuit, uh, you know, base drumming game for a long time. You know, back when I was wingsuiting, it was definitely uh, exits. Exits had the narrowest margin for error. You know, the suits didn't start as fast. People were doing things that were right on the edge of their capacity you know, finding lift right at the last moment so that they could outglide the terrain. You know, I, I don't see that as uh, like the things that were dangerous back in my day are like ridiculously easy these days. Um, and now it's about like errors in judgment um, where somebody like takes all the available lift and skill and technology to take their suit into a realm that theoretically uh, it can go, but practically speaking has very narrow margin for error. Yeah, so unfortunately, you really hit something on the head there that the easiest place to quantify margins are the exits, right? Like you can track your fly site, you can show yourself your start arc over 100 jumps, and you can see how similar or dissimilar those exits are. And then you can overlay that on top of another jump. And you can actually quantify, like, I will make this by 23%, or I I, will, I need an extra 7% in order to be able to do this. Uh, and then you can actually set your own safety margins, if you will. Like if, if you are uncomfortable with anything being within 10%, which I think is maybe a little bit too thin, but that's just my personal opinion. Um, unfortunately, now we're seeing less 
exit issues because one technique has improved two suits have improved uh, and three exit recon has improved significantly as well and so the things like short starts really freak me out i am not a short start guy i'm not built for it i don't train for it i train for speed i like to go fast um so i just avoid those super short start jumps that's not my style uh but that is the easiest place i think to quantify margins right and so once you're out into flying then it becomes a judgment thing right and so you can know what the topography says you can study the maps you can see where the like over two to one glide sections are um but then it just becomes well you can just not fly there right and so unless unless you're listening to real-time data and you know how fast you're going or how much available lift you have then it becomes like a okay i have a pretty good understanding that this is going to be okay but it does become just kind of a, a judgment thing and i don't have a way to quantify that in flight yeah the judgment i, mean, I go ahead matt yeah, I, I guess if I were to go back to my days, uh, the scariest part of the wingsuit flight was the initial rollout. And not only because you were like not truly flying with any you know authority yet, but also because you were very close to the terrain and it was where you could make or break the entire flight. You know, if you misjudge that rollout and you uh, set too high of an angle of attack you're in risk of stalling still into the terrain and then uh furthermore like could put yourself meaningfully behind the next uh checkpoint uh to a degree that you might actually have to like reaction pitch or completely change your line and so that initial rollout i feel was the most scary and to answer your question low maybe the most dangerous what do you mean by rollout? Uh, so from uh, the uh, exit dive to uh, finding an angle of attack that is appropriate for the next oncoming section. So from going to like free fall to fly. Gotcha. And I don't, I think it's important to note that physics hasn't really changed. And so even though the, the technology to laser the exits and get the overlays are better, uh, we as pilots still have the ability to stall suits into terrain because we're too greedy too early on, right? Like there's definitely a part of learning wingsuit base that you have to accept some descent in order to translate that into powerful like forward speed. Uh, and so there's definitely like a, I think a scary school of thought where you just get out and get as flat as you can as early as you can because that's not actually generating any sort of glide. And that's where I think that a lot of early training is required. Yeah, I'll um, I'll back you up on that for sure. Uh, you know, I jump with some people who are, let's say, talented alpinists and climbers and have uh, limited wingsuit skydiving experience. So, you know, they're, they stay within their margins, um, but are not, you know, super talented pilots. And that's something that I see a lot is like, okay, we're going to about to do a flight that's over 2000 meters and, um, they get out and it's just like full extension, boom, trying to pop off the exit and be flying as soon as possible when you have this massive jump you have. And this is really like, we've talked about this before, but like, what is the best start? 
isn't necessarily the fastest start, but what's going to help propel you and continue to accelerate throughout that entire flight. And, uh, you know, that, I don't know where that came from, but now like those moments of slowing down, it's always like in my mind, just these, you know, sirens and red lights coming on. I'm just like, okay, like this is not a good place to be. And, um, yeah, my more old and, and, uh, safety conscious self is like, just wants to be flying as fast as possible. With all of the things that, uh, training for time does poorly to teach us about how to fly wingsuits. I think that that theory right there uh, makes a very good case for at least some introduction to PPC style flying, where it's all energy management, where you're only ever going to have as much power as you begin your run with, and there's never getting any of it back, right? And so I think that doing like some skydiving competition, even if it doesn't become your whole life like it accidentally did mine, uh, I think that it's (laughs) pretty helpful to get like a basic understanding of what the wind is doing as it pours over your leading edge onto the top surface of the suit or what it shouldn't feel like when all of your body weight is resting in between your shins. Like it's not a good place to be flying at those super high angles of attack. And I think that spending some time flying in those configurations can be really helpful when it comes to like recovering from a short start or when you are out in the mountains and you want to get really far away, you know? Uh, I was really impressed in 2016, following you, Lo, uh, from Bravant, we kind of traversed like all the way across the mountain back towards like the jumper's right side and landed kind of near like a, a lake par- pa- park packing area kind of thing. And I was really impressed at like how efficiently and fast you flew that. It was really cool to get to see when I was like still in the earlier years of my wingsuit base jumping and like you had a really like... um a good authority on how to fly efficiently in those, like, it's not a super big start, but we have to get some, get going somewhere far. And I thought that that was really cool to see. And I learned a lot there. Ah, uh, cool, man. Thank you. Um, you probably fly with me now and you'd be like, what inspired by that dude, <laughs> I'll follow you on the next jump we do together. <laughs> yeah, that's a uh, line eight. Um, man, that's a, that's a good line. That's a really good line. <laughs> Um, do you, um, do you do any remote coaching? Cause you know, there's a lot of people, um, that, you know, I have conversations, um, outside of the podcast about the podcast and people are, the, this has come up quite a few times le- recently where they're like, you know, I really want to get into this fly side stuff. Um, and a few of our other guests have, have brought up the fact that they do remote coaching. Do you, do you think that's effective to like help somebody look at their fly site data from some other place on earth? From a dollars to jumps standpoint, yes, I absolutely think that remote coaching is valuable. Um, mostly because for like PPC style flying, it's going to be a pretty boring video, right? You're getting into one position and you're holding it for as long as you can, basically. Uh, there's definitely value in that as well, but I think that the the graphical analysis is far more important than like the configurations because we we as a community understand that the best configuration is just perfectly flat the whole time, right? And so now it's just, where can I afford to pitch that and put like push my suit to get to, to maximize my results? And so I think that remote coaching is 
very valuable. And if you find somebody that you trust that can offer that for you, I absolutely think it's worthwhile. Like, could you take us through what um, a zero to hero wingsuit looks like with uh, Arcus Flight? I have to just only imagine that people have come to you with zero skydives and said, hey, I want a wingsuit. So every once in a while, we get one of those really fun phone calls. Um, either they want to come work with us or they just want to rent a suit from us. Um, and we ask them, where do you skydive? And their response is, what do you mean skydive? And to have to explain like, well, this is like an advanced form of skydiving and you kind of need to like get into it first is always fun. Um, I think that there's definitely a place for like that sort of program, right? Where somebody has this long-term end goal in mind. Um, but just knowing myself and our schedule, I don't want to do a disservice to people by offering something that I know that I can't realistically provide a good product for, right? I would much rather do uh, more work for more people than one person, but kind of like a intermittent job, right? Like I understand that I have the ability to do all of these things, but I don't have the, uh, I would, I would feel badly having to like, uh, segment things quite so much. Right. And so I don't really like the, uh, personally doing the zero to hero thing myself. Right. I do think that there's a, a good, like there's, there's use for that, right? There's definitely a place where somebody comes and like, hey, I've got seven months. All I want to do is skydive, learn to wingsuit, learn to base jump. And I think that that's fine, right? Like you can definitely do it that way. Um, but being as busy as I am and we are, I don't want to be the guy trying to do that because I think that I can service more people better by doing shorter one-on-one -on -one stints with people. And so I tend to direct people like, cool, that's great go learn to skydive, go do some like free fly coaching, angle coaching, just don't just do zoo dives for 200 jumps and then come see me and we can actually get to work. Right. Um, but I, I do, we get those phone calls every once in a while and, uh, it's definitely fun. What we prefer to do is like have that conversation, go learn to skydive local drop zone, whatever, and then come spend a week or two with us and we will get you at least like really far into the progression of being like an active wingsuiter, right? We do a first flight course where we get all the gear set up for you. We like go through all what we consider to be like the, the core fundamentals of being a wingsuit pilot in the skydiving environment, right? Where we have to understand like what jump run is, where we can expect other parachutes, how we navigate, uh, logistical concerns on the plane, off the plane, getting on the plane, um, exits the actual flying technique and then deployment technique and then parachuting as like a pretty low descent rate with the students being pretty much in your airspace at the same time. Uh, and so we go through a pretty thorough first flight course where like people walk away having like a pretty good grasp of what's going on. Uh, and then I really like to see them just start to get comfortable in the suit. And sometimes they don't even need me or us to be there for that, right? Where you just need to go do at least a handful of solos to get used to jumping out of the plane, looking around, navigating, opening where you said you were going to, right? And then we can start 
getting you into like a, a Swift or something with a little bit more performance. And we can actually start tuning it up, right? We can start talking about pitch control. We can start talking about like uh, more aggressive turns. We can talk about flying in groups. We can fly about, we can talk about flying for performance. Then go do more solos. Use those tools that we provide you, right? Uh, I don't like to just take people's money and do the same jump over and over and over and over again. I really want to see people progress. Take like I want to provide you the tools and you get to go swing the hammer, right? Uh, and so when they do that for a week or two, they can go and hang out at pretty much any drop zone and fly a smaller suit with people who are at least capable of flying in groups, right? Then if they decide that wingsuit base is their like end end goal, then they'll come back in a season after they've spent some time in their ATCs or their freaks, and we can actually start working on base specific drills. I've got a container that I really encourage people to put their base canopies into. Uh, I want you to feel the difference in the openings. I want you to have the full experience flying with a fly site um, at what I would consider base performance, and then opening your base canopy and doing all the drills as if it was a base jump. But now we have way more time to play with it. Right. So you get to do all the rear riser stalls. You can get to fly it backwards on the toggles. You can get to do all the fun stuff. And then it's an accuracy jump at the end. Right. So where things really start to matter. Uh, so we'll do that for a week and then off they go. Off they go. Does that answer the question? Off they go into the, the big wide world. How many, um, I guess it doesn't really matter how many, but do you, do you feel like there's a, a certain percentage of your students who are there for wingsuit skydiving and they're there for wingsuit base jumping? It's just for me to get an idea of like, uh, you know, people that come to you, what are they trying to get out of this? What are their goals? So that's always a difficult conversation for me to have with them as well, because I get a lot of the wandering aimless or slightly embarrassed about their goals types where they really want to wingsuit base jump, but like they have either been laughed at or like told to put that aside by other people. And I'm not that guy, right? Like if you come to me with zero skydives, I will give you the path how to do that, right? I encourage long-term thinking, right? And I don't want anybody to be embarrassed to say that like, I would like to wingsuit base jump and say that with like some sort of conviction. And I don't mind that at all, even if it's in the first flight course, right? And I would say that of my first flight courses, at least 40%, more likely 45 to 48% are at least comfortable saying, I would like to wingsuit base jump one day. I don't know if I can, right? Then I would say of the like outside of first flight course coaching, like day rate coaching, I would say 60, 65% is I just want to learn to be a better wingsuit skydiver. And then 35% is probably like specific wingsuit based stuff where sometimes sometimes that's just performance based and sometimes that's like i'm leaving in two weeks tune me up that's an interesting one about being embarrassed with their goals matt have you had a lot of experience with people um you know this is kind of a cool conversation because um we have the base jumping first jump course side of things and then we have this the wingsuiting side of things you both are bringing like uh, the the two elements of based wingsuit base together, um, but I'm wondering, Matt, do you do you see a lot of people that um, on the drop zone or that you're exposed to? I mean, I guess it would be less inclined to do that with you because you're a base instructor, 
But do you see that people are sort of timid about expressing their true goals? Sometimes. Um, and I agree with Dan. <clears throat> I, I really encourage long-term thinking. And I think a lot of people get shut down early because of one reason or another. You know, uh, you know, it's scary to find somebody that is unprepared for a really dangerous environment, uh, expressing the desire to be in that dangerous environment. But um, I've done my best to adopt the same approach as Dan. I, I never tell anyone no. It's always yes. It's a yes and. So, you know, somebody comes to me and, and says they want to be a base jumper and they've never touched a parachute in their life. It's yes, I can help you do that. And here's where you need to start. Um, and it might not even be with skydiving. It might be with uh, other extreme sports that they're already interested in that give them the skills and knowledge to be uh, effective operators in a very dangerous environment. Right. And along the way, like we'll start, you know, learning the bits and pieces that will make them effective base jumpers. But it, you know, it costs you nothing to put somebody on a path towards that goal. Um, you know, and anyone can pick up a book and start learning about the thing that they want to uh, eventually do. And so, yeah, I, I do come across a lot of those people. Um, I, I also come across a lot of people who are timid about their goals. And I try and rewire that for them. Because like, if you've got something in mind, if you've got a dream in mind and you're timid about it, then you're going to go about the training all wrong. Right. Like if somebody is uh, expressing to them like, you know, well, you should just focus on skydiving right now. OK, well, where does that put most people? That puts most people doing like four way belly jumps, which is totally irrelevant for like base jumping versus if, you know, they meet one of us and we're like, hey, like I want to go. I want to be a base jumper and I, I've only got this many skydives. I'm like, OK, cool. Let's hook you up with all the crew people. You know, start doing things that are relevant to your end goal right now. And so uh, I try and train that timidity out of, of people so that they can, um, you know, adopt a, a more effective approach for what they want. Yeah, that's really great to hear because it's true. I, I mean, I remember when I was starting out, I was timid with my goals as well. Uh, I, you know, obviously I grew up in the skydiving world uh, in a place that was um, a little off white, little less than normal. But, um, even there it was like, uh, you know, yeah, just like you said, people would just shut you down. And so, uh, you kind of learn to, to keep that to yourself and, and get the best you can out of it without being absolutely forthcoming. But, um, I, I'm wondering if that's sort of a, a shift in cultures as well, that people see, you know, that this progression path has been popularized and it's, more common knowledge to, to realize, okay, I want to be a base jumper. I'm going to start skydiving. I need to be, you know, super dialed with my accuracy. I need to be super dialed with my canopy piloting. I need to be, if I'm going into the tracking or wingsuit space that I really need to learn how to fly my body. So, you know, there's all these different facets of skydiving and, it's difficult to navigate, right? Because you show up at the drop zone as a beginner skydiver and you look at the people that you want to jump with and you get wrapped up in the fun and the chaos and the zoo loads, like Dan put it. And, you know, all of a sudden you've done 50 jumps and yes, it's been a blast, but are you moving closer to the goals of becoming a more efficient skydiver for base jumping? It's questionable, right? And uh, I think it's really important that 
everybody is, you know, even now as we're all seasoned in this sport to, to be really like, okay, fuck, you know, like I'm going to go do so, you know, I'm going to go on a trip to Spain and do some skydiving. And, you know, when was the last time I actually did some canopy drills? When was the last time I, 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 um, you know, did some objects avoidance, you know, you know, I've been in the sport for 14 years now. Um, it's been about five or six years since I've done some object avoidance drills. Um, so am I making any slider up slider down jumps now? No, but the next time I do want to, I'm going to treat that like someone who's not current. It's not, this is not my game. This is, I'm a beginner in this air, this domain of base jumping again. And, um, yeah, I think that that's important sort of mindset to carry on through all aspects and, and levels. Yeah. And as people are doing these initial progressions, um, I'll also say that, you know, all roads lead to Mecca. Some are more winding than others, but they all lead there. And having fun along the way is important because it, you know, it continues to build our passion and, and our desire for these things. And if it's fun, then you'll put more of your energy into it. And so like the people that are, you know, out there going like, well, I want to do X, Y, and Z that doesn't really relate to my end state goal. I say like, do it anyway. It all, it all informs the parachute world. It all informs free fall, body awareness, air awareness. All of it is, is useful, you know, and, and will transfer eventually. Um, and so, you know, you're not wasting time by, you know, jumping in the tunnel. If your eventual goal is wingsuiting, those skills will translate. You're not wasting time, uh, building ridiculous zoo loads. If your eventual goal is slider down base, because you're learning how to mitigate risk, you know, um, and eventually you're going to have to like walk the straight line path to learn a specific skill set. Uh, but where that happens in the progression is, is irrelevant, just that it does happen at some point. That's a really good point. And, you know, uh, Dan, I come from multi-sport background. Matt has uh, a lot of experience in climbing and, and snowboarding and various other activities that can get you hurt and fucked up. Um, you know, we hit on this over and over and over again, that judgment might be the, the strongest pillar of success in base jumping. And that decision to make to go or no go in skydiving is usually indicated by a light at the door. Uh, do you have any personal experience outside of skydiving or base jumping that helps you to develop this judgment? Or if you don't, did you understand along the progression path of skydiving that skydiving wasn't going to offer that to you? So I started skydiving in 2007 uh, with the goal of base jumping. But I was definitely one of those people who kept that quiet because I didn't want the older, like the more seasoned people at the drop zone to like tell me that that was dumb or like not a good idea. Um, so I wasn't very like open about that. Um, but I did bring like I understood how uh, self-reliant you needed to be in the base environment when I, when I began skydiving, right? I understood what that end goal really looked like, where there's no riggers around, there's no packing, there's no pilot. It's just you can jump or not jump, and it's really up to you. Um, so I did try to bring that attitude towards skydiving when I did begin. Uh, living in Florida, I wasn't big into rock climbing, uh, wasn't ever like a sailing person or anything like that. Um, 
I had some like team sports backgrounds, but nothing ever like this really. Um, and so it really developed in the skydiving world where I knew what I wanted. And one of my, like my best friend growing up, he got into this like just before I did. And so I, he got to like kind of clue me in onto what I could expect coming through it. And that was hugely helpful because like when I showed up to do AFF, I had already learned how to pack, right? Like I, I knew what was going on. I understood the gear. Uh, he was already base jumping at the time. So I got to understand like what a base pack job looks like and how like you can just do it in your front lawn and then go climb an antenna and jump off of it. And so like there's really no supervision. And so I, I was very fortunate to come into the sport just after somebody that I loved and respected like had done the same thing. And so I had that like very like foundational understanding of like how critical like decision making on your own was. That's good to hear that mentorship actually can inspire, you know, wisdom in this, you know, like it's, it's really a, a giant question mark of like how, how do you instill wisdom into students, right? Or people who are new at this, you know, because I mean, we all can fun, like what Matt was saying, like, we can't lose sight of the fact that, that we're doing this for fun, right? Like this is one of the most inspiring, awe-inspiring, uh, fun activities that you possibly can do. Um, and kind of goes without saying, um, but you know, that we start to sound a little bit like, uh, some old finger, finger waggers, you know, like, uh, don't do this and don't do that. But, the, the reality is that where you're hoping to instill some lessons that, um, you know, that's going to diminish some of the misery and some of the hard mistakes that come along the way. And well, I'll say something to that. Please go. Yeah. The, the finger wagging it's, you know, it's not so much don't do that. You know, it's the wisdom becomes in us being able to say, if you do that, this is the eventual result. You know, I'm, I'm not like, I'm not telling anyone what to do or not to do. I'm just being honest with them about the trajectory, right? And we've been around long enough that that trajectory has played out multiple different times. And, you know, if we are truly uh, calculating jumpers, then we can quantify the margins that somebody is working with and then mathematically tell them like, this is how long you'll be able to keep that up. This is the probability of this uh, ending in this fashion for you, you know? And again, if somebody tells me like, Hey man, I'm trying to burn the candle at both ends, stick wicks in the middle, burn those motherfuckers too. Then I'm like, okay, well I've done my job of like imparting the wisdom that I have of like, this is the eventual goal that you're driving for. And if that's intentional, then I'm going to step back and let you do it. I haven't told you like, you know, what to do or not to do. I've instilled the wisdom that I have over the experience of my life. That's much better than finger wagging. That's for sure. You know, like one uh, experience or one memory kind of comes to the surface when we talk about this is uh, Alex Duncan. Uh, super good guy. So fun to hang out with. So fun to jump with. And he always just had like this carefree sort of like he was there. He was like surfing, you know, like it was just like, ah, we're going to go to the beach and you're just going to hang out and we're going to make some jumps. And, you know, it was just so relaxed. And I really envied him in a way in his approach. And it was just, there was no stress. It was no, and, you know, in, in comparison to my own where I, I was 
cautious, am cautious and, and fearful and um, hesitant sometimes. And um, sometimes off-putting socially because I don't want to be in a situation that I know is could be potentially driving me towards a, you know, a, a situation I don't want to be in. And I, yeah, I really envied the, that, that sort of laid back attitude. And, uh, I don't think that that fits with base. I don't think it works. You know, the, the older I get, the more and longer I've been in the sport, the more I wish it could be like that but it's not. I do think that a, uh, like an overwhelming fear is probably not the best place for a performance, but definitely a healthy respect of like, we need to operate at a very high level here can definitely increase your longevity. You know, um, sure. You can come to certain exits with like a pretty high degree of certainty that like everything's going to be okay. But I don't think that like, it should be compared to surfing. Like you're just going to go like sit on a wave and then go have like a Mai Tai by the beach. I don't think that that's exactly the mountain environment that I want to be base jumping in. Um, and that's not to say that like other people can't operate that way, but I do think that like some sort of fear or respect is definitely like the best way to have a long lifespan here. I mean, it seems like we're talking about relaxation, you know, uh, relax, being relaxed is, uh, something that like commonly is given like as the, you know, how, how do we, you know, how do we improve performance? Well, relax, you know, but, uh, there is a, it's on a, you know, a, a spectrum here, you know, if you are too relaxed, then you're actually not going to have the correct body tension. You're not going to have the right reaction time and you're going to, you know, devolve your performance if you're too tense then obviously like you're going to be twitchy and you're not going to perform very well you know and where that uh you know where you draw the line i think is based on the margin for error and the capacity that you have to perform that given task you know if you notice somebody treating you know a wingsuit terrain line like they're you know surfing a a shore break that's like two to three feet, then obviously like they're a little too relaxed for that environment, you know, (laughs) like, dude, get it together. Um, versus like somebody that's like, you know, noticeably tense in, you know, an area like jumping the bridge static line or something like that, or jumping, you know, getting a PCA off a bridge into like a grass field. And you're like, okay, wow. Like this person needs to relax a little bit more in order to perform better. Absolutely. And there's definitely a correlation between that, uh, you know, terror on one side and, uh, chilling on the beach, having a Mai Tai on the other, right. As, as far as general awareness and then on, on both ends, like just not being sufficient. We talked a lot about goals, um, and, and I'm wondering here, um, you know, you seem to be Dan, someone who's driven by, um, progression, performance. Um, do you, are you checking in regularly with your own goals to make sure that, you know, you're in it for the right reasons for yourself and it makes sense what you're doing? Cause I, this may sound like a convoluted question, but you know, 
even with a lot of confidence and training and, you know, this whole lifestyle of wingsuiting and base jumping, it demands a lot from us, the time, money, focus, all of that stuff like that. Do you, do you check in with yourself? Like, is this what I really want to be doing? Or is this something that's like an overwhelming, yes, this is who I am and what I want to do with my life? So I get to have this or some version of this conversation every once in a while. And it's always kind of difficult to like really convey exactly my meaning. Um, but like a lot of people talk about like they want to push it and they like really want to go hard and they want like they always talk about pushing and pushing is the word that I stick on because I don't feel like I want to push. I feel like I am pulled and it's a little bit I feel 180 degrees differently like I this is something that I have wanted since I can remember um like I saw skydiving for the first time when I was six and the Mighty Morphin Power Rangers movie came out and I was like yep got to do that one day uh had no idea that it would take over the way that it has but it's always been there for me and um yeah I feel very much drawn to it and I can go like over the winter time when I'm not actively base jumping and it's it's nice to get to be home and skydive and hang out and whatnot but I definitely feel like uh an internal desire to want to be jumping off the mountains and flying my wingsuit and landing in cool places and just having that experience too um and then on top of that there's the like I want to race and go fast and have fun that's always a good time. Yeah. I think the thing that keeps me coming back is generally, um, at the landing area, like just looking around and absorbing all those feel good here and now chemicals rushing through my body and just, just unbelievably grateful that I get to live out these sort of moments. And that's what keeps keeps me coming back what about you matt do you ever vacillate on on the whys on the whys of base jumping yeah. um yeah every single jump um i think uh i think it's healthy to continue to question why we're doing this and um you know i i commonly tell people you know i quit after every jump and then i find a new reason to pick it back up on the next one and, uh, right now it's pretty easy for me. I'm jumping because, uh, I want to stay current enough to help people with their own progressions. You know, I, I've gotten so much out of the sport that, or the, the activity, the game, the pursuit, the practice, I like practice. I've gotten enough out of the practice of base jumping that I feel like, um, my real pushing for new goals is, is over. And now, uh, it's, it's all about helping the next generation avoid the mistakes that I've made and hopefully uh, get them more of what they want, um, at less of a cost. So you're finding a motivation through helping others that, um, you know, this is another like philosophical question about base that comes into it is uh, like, Dan, do you feel that base jumping is a selfish act? I 100% feel like base jumping is a selfish act. Um, like there is something to be said for like the, the ability to share it with other people. And I, 
totally understand what Matt is saying. Um, but I don't think that I would be able to be happy as a base jumper only doing it to service other people. And I guess kudos to you, Matt. <laughs> well, I mean, here's my question. Do you think you'd be a happy person if you were not doing what uh, you wanted to be doing? That's a tough one. I always like, I go through the year, like waiting for like the next summer when like, I know that I have it coming, but I, if I knew that I couldn't do it anymore, that would probably weigh pretty heavy on me. Uh, I don't know that I would be an inherently unhappy person, uh, but it would definitely take a toll, I think. True enough. And how does that serve the people around you? Like if you're walking around an unhappy person because you were not able to, you know, pursue the the dreams that you have, you know, does that give them more or less capacity? Like, does that give them more or less of you? Sure. So like you can't pour from an empty cup, you know? So is it like a selfish act to be selfish so that there's more of you to go around? Like uh, that's a valid, valid point. Yeah. And this goes back to a conversation that we had with, um, uh, super Frenchie and how we really define selfishness. I think, you know, in my book, selfishness is, uh, doing something for yourself at the expense of others versus something that was self-serving, which is doing something to fill your cup, as you just said, right? And we have to do that in order to be useful to other people. You know, if, if I'm like using all the hot water in my house such that like no one else can take a hot shower, that's selfish. If I'm not showering <laughs> and I start to smell like a, <laughs> you know, a, a bridge troll and my health starts to deteriorate, well, now I'm not being self-serving enough and that is detracting from other people's experience. Totally valid. No. Yeah. Uh, there's definitely like, I, I really like the, you can't pour from an empty cup kind of thing. And so I think that, yeah, like self-serving is very different than selfishness. Right. And I'll say that like, you know, perhaps base jumping doesn't fit into the category of selfless. You know, there is an, there is a, an element of like, I want this, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, but you know, calling it selfish is, is strange. It's, I think that there are, are ways that it can be selfish. I think it's all in how you do it. You know, if you're one of those people that asks no questions, jumps into the, the game without any understanding, um, you know, totally takes reckless, you know, decisions and, um, ends up, you know, costing your life. Let's put it to the extremes. Like it ends up costing you your life. Uh, and you have done so unintentionally unaware, uh, totally made a mistake. Like I would say that that is a selfish act. You know, I, I would say that it's selfish to, uh, base jump without any plan for what happens, uh, in the event that you get injured or die, because you're not considering, uh, the other people that you will affect. Right. And there will be effect. It's not like everyone's just going to, uh, you know, congratulate you for, you know, following your dreams and then move on. You know, there is tragedy uh, behind injury and death. Right. And so if you've gone into that zone unprepared, then you're being selfish. However, if you've done everything in your power to uh, be prepared for that environment, gone in intentionally with preparation and all of this other stuff, it's going to suck for some other people. But I don't, I don't believe that that still fits into the category of selfish. 
Yeah, I think it, this is not necessarily a, a binary question, right? There's um, there's some gray in between, and how you approach it, and how you're going to fill up your cup, and and what you're going to have in that cup to share with others after you make that base jump, or while you're preparing for those base jumps, and what it brings to your life in general, is really dependent on whether or not you're acting selfishly or not. Right. Yeah. How selfish is it? I think is the question. Not is it selfish or not? You know, it's all on a spectrum, just like the other concepts that we've been talking about, you know, and that really comes down to a question of what do you need as an individual and how prepared are you to get what you need? Like if, if all you need is 10 base jumps in your entire life, but for some reason you do, you know, 5,000. Okay. You, you might be you know, being a little more selfish than others there, because there are other ways that you could have spent your energy um, that was, you know, not putting your life at risk. Um, And then the opposite of that is also true. If what you need in your life is to continue base jumping for the rest of your life, and that's the thing that's keeping you on planet earth, literally. And there are people like that in our community who like put down the gun to pick up the parachute. And if you're one of those people, then base jumping is definitely not a selfish act. It's, it's the thing that is tying you to the rest of us, keeping you engaged, you know? And so I would say that's more of a self-serving act. Dan, um, do you envision your base jumping career into the future and what it's going to look like? Uh, I have hopes. Yeah. I, um, <laughs> It seems silly. I uh, I want to be James Bull when I grow up. Uh, <laughs> uh, start needing to grow that hair yeah. out a little bit. Yeah, his is getting. It's nice, right? <laughs> uh, no, I uh, I've really started to enjoy the challenges and complexities of uh, filming wingsuit sequences, and I think that that's really like a rewarding challenge, um, which may even take away a bit of the selfishness because then you get to like share that experience and like the ways that other people want to see it or care about seeing it. And, uh, so I, I really hope that that gets to be more of something that I get to do more frequently because I, I really enjoy it. And the, the teamwork aspect of capturing something that like a director wants or like the production needs, uh, I think is really cool. It's a very unique set of challenges when you're like, running battery wires like down your suit into the nutsack and you're like mounting things on the helmet weird or backwards and it's it's a unique style of jumping uh that has to be very tailored for what you're doing and i, I would really like to do that more and uh yeah that's uh that's really cool um that's something lately that i've really been enjoying doing as well and uh, you know just having that new challenge we're not necessarily new but added challenge that doesn't necessarily up the danger um, is really attractive to me because, you know, like I, I'm not looking to, to fly hardcore terrain lines anymore. Um, and, but I'm getting that same sort of like challenge through trying to capture people's flights, chase them down, catch up quickly, be in the position that I want to do, thinking about framing, uh, the, the shot, what's the light, where's the light, where can I be to capture this the most beautifully? Um, yeah, it's a, it's a never-ending um, progression path right there. 
Can you can we talk a little bit about camera flying and maybe what you've learned uh, over the last season or two? And you know, because I've seen you posting some beautiful shots and on a variety of different cameras and share with us a little bit of um, the knowledge you've been getting about keeping people in frame and, and keeping yourself out of trouble. Uh, yeah. So I, I've always really liked cameras. Like I've, I've always thought that they were really cool, but I've never had something that was like so focused, you know, uh, that I wanted to like capture from all the different like ways. Uh, and so I really in, have enjoyed the challenges, you know, like I got to spend some time with Jeb this summer, uh, following him like out of helicopters and down some base jumps. And that was really good. Um, one of my favorite games to do while I'm skydiving, especially during like chaotic first flight courses is to not let my shadow touch the the student. Uh, and so like you're having to do the trigonometry of like, where can I be while the student is maybe not in total control so that you still get shots of them, but you're not letting your shadow touch them. And I try and like dock points for myself if I if I mess that up. Um, but um, when you're base jumping, do you use um, a ringside or how do you keep people um, in frame or how do you know that they're in frame? So I do. I sometimes will use a ringside. Uh, I've taken pretty good care to mount it with like the the nylon screws so that if it does hang up, it'll break off. I've uh, I had one get lost. Well, I've had lost two skydiving. Haven't had any issues base jumping, uh, thankfully. Um, but definitely the ring site's super helpful, especially when that's like an important jump, you know, um, for just casual things when I'm following people in the valley or like when I was at the heli boogie in the Dolomites, it was really just for me. Uh, and some of the shots turned out cool, which is a bonus, but, um, that's really just, I've done a thousand jumps with that camera system on my head and I kind of know where it's at, but when we're changing things up or we're jumping bigger cameras, like the, the red Raptor or the, the bigger Z cams, it's, um, it gets to be a little bit more critical, especially when they're like shooting with tighter lenses or something like that. And then the, the ring site really becomes like my best friend and like I have, I would stand there and like have somebody sighting the camera and I would ask them where on the, on the body, like the, the view actually was. And then I would make a note to myself about what the ring sight needed to look like on their body to replicate that shot in the air. And so sometimes it was like, put the ring sight on their jaw. And then I knew that the whole body was in frame or like keep the center of the ring sight on their BOC. And then I knew that I was getting exactly what I was asked for. Uh, and so I got to do that while I was shooting that Nike commercial uh, in Switzerland a couple of weeks ago. And that was a really, really fun challenge to get to work with people who um, hadn't limited, like the camera crew was had limited uh, skydiving and windsuit experience. And so when we were able to like capture pretty much exactly what they were asking for, they were really happy about it. And I, I thought that was pretty neat. I've got a question about uh, flying with somebody and being the camera flyer and how much trust it takes and how you build that trust between each other. You know, I, I had the um, uh, great fortune of working on a project with Dan not too long ago uh, where he was the camera flyer uh, for Val Sobel and they were doing wingsuit base jumping in Moab. And, you know, while those are being more commonly flown lines, uh, still they are not very, they don't have a whole lot of margin. Like you've got to be on it the entire time. 
And when you're camera flying, you know, you're mostly focused on the person. And so I'm wondering, like, how do you build trust enough in that person uh, to follow them through a line with like relatively zero margin? And uh, are you relying on them or are you do you have are you splitting your awareness between uh, the line and the camera? And if so, like what percentages are devoted to each? Sure. Yeah. So um, getting to fly with Val and Moab was a lot of fun. I really enjoyed that project and I really hope that I get to work with her more. Uh, she's always fun to fly with and I know her flying style. I've known her for years and I understand what um, her risk tolerances are. And I was fairly confident that like if she was comfortable being somewhere, I would be comfortable being there as well. Um, but that doesn't mean that I was only focused on her the whole time. Um, realistically, like it's always on me to make my own flying decisions in flight. And so it's 45% sighting the shot and then 55% looking out the corner of my eye off to the side, making sure that I know where we're going and I'm happy with it. And if I can take like a mental screenshot of where we're headed, I can dedicate a few seconds of like sole focus on the shot and establishing that or moving somewhere where the shot was desired to be and then go back to splitting my attention back and forth. Um, it's definitely a challenge to be able to do both. And I feel very fortunate to get to attempt it as much as I do. How well do you have to know a flyer and how well do you have to know a line before you're comfortable camera flying it? So that's a really valid question. Um, there are some lines that are mountain skydives where I care a little bit less, you know, where it's like, if you were to go jump something and you're just flying out and away from everything, getting out to a landing area kind of high, I my tolerances go way up, you know, like it's a easy exit, straight flight, no real terrain issues, then that's fairly simple, right? Um, but I probably would be pretty uncomfortable following somebody on like a, a technical terrain line for the first time, having never flown it myself. Uh, so I would want to do at least a jump or two on my own and then a not dedicated camera jump following the person a couple times the way that they want to fly it before I would ever be comfortable like actually devoting real time and attention to flying the lines that they want. And how about the person? How well do you have to know the person before you're comfortable camera flying for them? Or does it matter if you know the line well enough? So I definitely need to have personally I want to have like a pretty good understanding of the person that I'm flying with either like hopefully both their skill set and their risk tolerances. You know, I don't want somebody that is super high skill with a very high risk tolerance to take me into a place where I need more than 100% of my flying capabilities to get myself out. And I really don't really want to let that happen. Uh, and so sometimes it requires a conversation before we start shooting and before we start jumping where, um, hey, we're doing this for somebody else. This isn't for us. So we need to dial it way back, right? Um, like nothing more than 60%. You know, we, we shouldn't be super close to things. And if we are super close to things, we need to know exactly what's coming before, during, and after them so that as we break away, there's no surprise wires, trees, anything like that. Uh, it does take a bit of conversation and physics still apply, right? So when you add a bunch of drag on the top of your head and I'm a shorter person, uh, I typically like, 
it's difficult to fly with somebody who's six foot four and weighs 140 pounds and they can out float me regardless of the suit that I'm jumping in. And so we have to discuss the flying style, where we want to go, what the desired shots are. You know, it's a, it's a team effort and that's one of the really fun things about it. Speaking about teamwork on the exit and the flight, um, I've run into this uh, a bunch is like, um, you have somebody who's really keen to get a good shot, you know, who's the subject and they feel comfortable enough and, you know, relaxing into through their start arc and giving you a little bit of margin to catch up and et cetera like that. Have, can you explain a little bit um, what it would be like to brief somebody that you want to capture on, on film? Um, you know, some doing some of the things that will make it easier for you as a camera flyer. I, I definitely need help, especially when like I'm jumping with tall people and I have big bulky things up top, you know, so there's, there's still physics that still apply, right? I can't just outfly people all the time. And like it, it does become like very much teamwork. And so typically, uh, it's, I need some sort of not your flattest, best, fastest start ever, right? Sometimes you can, like if I can size up a suit, like if I'm in a C race and somebody's in a freak, then that makes my job a little bit easier. But the tools that you're using make a huge difference, right? And so if I'm in the same exact suit as somebody else, I need a little bit more help from that person, right? And especially if they are more aerodynamically inclined than I am, right? If they're my height, but skinnier, then I need them to be a little bit lazier on the exit. Uh, once we're moving, like we're off the exit, we're flying. If they go for like absolute max glide and I have to contort my body to lift my chin so that they're getting the shot that they want, they're always going to have more range than I will. Right. And so if they want that awesome shot, then we need to have a real discussion about where on the mountain we can go realistically. Right. Because if we're pointed down and there's a bit of an angle to it, I'm super happy, right? That's great. I can keep them in frame and I can see what's coming out in front of us. But if I have to fly with my chin way, way, way up, looking way out in front, I have to expose my whole chest, create so much drag that makes life way more difficult. I've got one on uh, finding yourself in bad position. Uh, what do you do when you find yourself in a bad position? And there are three that I'm really uh, curious about because I think they've led to a lot of deaths in the sport. Uh, one is getting burbled on exit. Uh, two is finding yourself behind the, uh, um, the subject entering terrain. And three is uh, getting crossed over, uh, either entering terrain or above terrain. Like cut off. Sure. So at least for the first two, um, verbal on exit, I feel like, um, that way, especially if you're following somebody close or there's multiple people, uh, it can become like a, a thing that's probably going to happen at some point. And, um, you should be pretty selective about who you're jumping with and where you're jumping. And if you're uncomfortable going through somebody's burble, then maybe we need to find a different jump to do the shot that you're looking for. Right. Uh, so like there's all the different selection things that really, really start to matter. Um, if you do find yourself falling through somebody's burble, like your absolute priority is always survive. Right. And so that doesn't necessarily mean get super flat right away. Um, I can think of an incident at Bravant where somebody was in somebody's robot, got pretty flat and didn't get moving super fast. Uh, so sometimes that's one of those like 
earlier training day things where you keep the, your angle down, get a little bit closer to the terrain, but develop the speed to be able to fly away safer, right? Um, to the second one, the entering terrain behind people, uh, that sounds like a... Um, Are you are you asking about being in their burble entering to terrain or just having to like follow directly below and behind? Just noticing that you're behind them, you know, like uh, all of a sudden they start, you know, pulling away from you. You're, you know, focused on the shot and uh, now entering the terrain, you recognize that you are low and away of what you should be if you're going to both like get the terrain and the shot, you know, survive the, the terrain and get the shot. Yeah, so... Uh... I got to have a conversation with James while I was just in China and he says there's no shot worth dying for. And I totally agree with him. Right. And so it's way easier to, uh, deviate from the plan, fly safely, get out high, go open land, repack, go do it again versus, uh, having to do a body recovery and make your friends go find a different camera flyer. So, uh, it's always better to just bail, stay safe. If you find yourself in that situation, yeah, nobody knows better, huh? Like James got that um, fairly early on, that lesson. You know, he uh, impacted the snow with uh, very little out and just walked away with a, a broken back on a professional job, I believe. Um, yeah, he's uh, happy he's still with us. I'm very happy he's still with us. He got to tell me that story, and that's not really my story to tell, but it was... Uh he did get a very good lesson. Well, hopefully we'll have the third one. Sorry. Is, uh, yeah, no, no, that was great. And then the the third one is getting crossed over. Uh, somebody cuts you off. What's the, um, do you have a, a strategy for that dealing with that? I mean, I haven't been in that situation, uh, not to say that it couldn't happen, but I, I haven't been there yet where, like I didn't have eyes on everybody that was on the jump that was supposed to be being filmed, right? No surprises. Um, one like an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure kind of things where everybody should be briefed. And if things aren't going to plan or if people are exiting the shot, then my job would be to back off and let people regroup so that we can do this better. But again, if something does go weird, high up and out is always the way. Dan, we haven't talked at all about your race. It's been super exciting for all of us to see a new venue um, and a beautiful location and particularly in Europe. So tell us a little bit about what inspired you. Uh, how did it go? And are we going to see it again next year? Yeah, so this was the first year for the Perdoi base race. I had been talking with the city of Kanaze for pretty much the last year. Um, and it was a little bit slow going at first. We had to overcome some um bureaucratic hurdles but eventually we got permission to host the first one as like a, a test event so i hand selected some people and we did the the first one in july this year um it had been four years since we had seen any other base races so there was a world base race in 2019 in norway and then the 2019 world wingsuit league was the most recent uh base wingsuit race and so i'd really wanted to put something together and it did feel a little bit weird to be hosting an event in italy as an american but uh, everybody seemed really receptive to it uh, the city council seemed thrilled that we were bringing something that was um showy to the area they thought that it was a really cool idea they really liked it we had 12 competitors 
everybody learned a lot, which was really like a, a big part of this. You know, uh, I truly believe that learning to fly uh, at these high speeds creates a lot of available lift and it helps everybody learn how to fly maybe just a little bit safer. And if you can take any of the lessons that you learn flying in these types of uh, configurations into your terrain flying. I think it's just a net positive for the sport in general. Uh, and so I actually have a meeting tomorrow with the city of Kanaze about selecting dates for next year's event. So it is all uh, tracking green for now. And I would really like to see you there, Lo. Uh, I'd love to make it. Matt, you got something to add? Yeah, I have a question about competition, and I'm wondering, do you have a precise definition for what healthy competition looks like? And as an organizer, how do you foster that type of competition? So I've heard stories about uh, at races in the past, people being what I would consider kind of bad sports to the other competitors, where maybe because there was money on the line, or maybe they just really, really wanted to win, like intrinsically, uh, where they would like, use psychological warfare and try and like one up the other competitors or try and put them out a little bit. And I would never want to see that at something that I'm a part of or organizing. I thought, I think that that's like kind of shitty. And I, I think that what we're doing is already like high stakes enough, you know, that, uh, learning to race and fly fast is just a, a friendly competition kind of thing. You know, we're not, um, we're not getting sponsored by, you know, like Porsche or we're not making any real money off of doing this. I think that, uh, if it becomes your like sole mission to like beat other people, I think that that's pretty unhealthy competition, right? I think that there is a difference between wanting to be better than you were yesterday. And I think that that's actually quite healthy. Like, I think that that is just a, a growth mindset. And I think that's not a bad thing at all. So if I'm picking you up correctly, then the, the, uh, points are that, um, winning is a byproduct, and the goal is to just perform as well as you can. And when you notice somebody, uh, focusing on winning, uh, like gamesmanship, then, uh, that's a marker for unhealthy competition. And then, uh, centering on like, really what's important, like the superficial, uh, things of, you know, sponsor money and, you know, whatever else you gain from winning is not as important as like surviving. Yes, for the most part, but I don't want it to sound like I don't think that wanting to win is bad. You know, like, I think that that's fairly human and wanting to, like, if you go to a competition, you want to be competitive and you want to win. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. Um, but I think that if that becomes your soul life purpose, maybe that's a bit unhealthy. Okay. So if um, it becomes like by any means necessary. Yeah. I wouldn't want to see any like cutthroat, uh, competition, you know, like we can go and we can train and we can win, uh, and be competitive against one another. But I don't really think that like the, the, no matter what the cost really fits in with what we're doing. So do you have any, uh, tricks or suggestions or, uh, lessons learned for fostering a healthy competition environment? Hand select your competitors. <laughs> uh, no, I, I'm sure that if we just had like an open invite, we would see some people show up who just like want to prove something, you know, and I think that you can go prove something by yourself, right? Uh, what we're doing in the public eye, I think needs to be, um, 
taken care of because our image as base jumpers is already pretty wild. And I think that if you're going to hold competitions or be part of competitions, a degree of professionalism is absolutely required. Well said. And, um, I just, we're running out of time now and, I just want to say that it's been a fantastic opportunity to chat with both of you. I've gotten so much out of this conversation. It's just such a pleasure to be able to put these headphones on and have these kind of conversations with guys like you, Dan and Matt. So thank you so much. And um, yeah, maybe we can do this again uh, leading up to or after the next edition of Pordoy. I'd love that. Thank you so much for having me, Lo. Thanks, Matt. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed this episode. If you have any thoughts about what you've just heard, please don't hesitate to reach out to us. Big shout out to Mark Stockwell, our sound engineer and co-producer. We love you and we couldn't do this without you. If you'd like to learn more about the podcast, visit our website, exitpointpodcast.com. Until next time, take care. And for everyone jumping out there, remember it's not what we do, but how we do it that speaks for who we are.